0: Well, in our Vesper services, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, a document that was produced at the time of the Protestant Reformation that explains the basics of the Christian faith, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in particular, we've been going through that section of the Catechism that explains for us the Lord's Prayer. Our series is titled Reorienting Desire because this is what the Lord's Prayer does. It disciples us, it teaches us, it catechizes us, it exposes our faulty desires, it recalibrates us and reorients our desires properly. Tonight, we're gonna look at the very first petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is explained for us in Lord's Day 47 of the Heidelberg Catechism, I will ask the question and I invite you to respond with the answer and the text will be projected on the monitors and on the screen above me. What is the first petition? Hallowed be your name. And then the text for the message tonight comes from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is found near the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the third book in the Bible. And we're going to look at a very significant chapter in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, which uh, provides the lifestyle that was to characterize the Israelites in the Old Covenant, And uh, perhaps as we read the text together, you can see its relevance for the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. Leviticus 19, we'll read verses 11 through 14. Leviticus 19, beginning at verse 11, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane, the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the city of Hamilton, at the turn of the 20th century, around the year 1900, had 50,000 residents. And it grew very rapidly over the next three decades, so that by 1930, Hamilton had a population of 155,000 people. Some of the population growth was attributable to immigration, about 40% of that growth. 75% of the immigrants came from the UK, from England, Scotland, or Wales, and the whole city was populated with factory workers. In the year 1913, there was a very significant conflict over wages in the city of Hamilton between the employers and the employees of machine shops. Most people, most of these machine workers were earning less than $2 a day. And if uh, they took 52 Sundays off and had three holidays, they would earn a yearly salary of $620, and they would have on a daily basis about 50 cents to spend on food and clothing. It simply wasn't enough to handle the contingencies of life. There wasn't enough of a margin for families to put food on the table for their children. And so, the machine workers in the city of Hamilton decided to strike and when they decided to strike they were supported by many pastors throughout the city of Hamilton and among the pastors who took the side of the workers was P W Philpot after whom Philpot Memorial Church is named he observed that in this conflict whereas the employees had made numerous concessions. The employers had not made any concessions. And he thought it was unjust and unfair. P.W. Philpot was an evangelical preacher, maybe even a fundamentalist preacher. He was not a social gospel preacher. But he and preachers across the city, you can read about it in the Hamilton Herald from years ago. They fought on the side of the workers. in this dispute with employers over wages. Now, what in the world does this have to do with the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed Be Your Name? Well, to pray, Hallowed Be Your Name, means, among other things, that workers would receive a fair wage. That's one of the things the Bible teaches us. We'll explain uh, tonight how exactly that works. Jesus teaches us right at the outset of the Lord's Prayer, to pray, Hallowed be your name. We're going to see two things in this connection. First of all, the holiness of God's name, and then secondly, the holiness of God's people. Jesus prays for us, Pray. Jesus teaches us to pray, Hallowed be your name. We'll see the holiness of God's name, and then secondly, the holiness of God's people. Well, what's the significance, first of all, of God's name? Well, in the book of Exodus chapter 3, we have narrated this very unusual encounter between God and Moses at the burning bush. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you may know that God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, and Moses was afraid to go to the Israelites. Why was Moses afraid to go to the Israelites? Because he said to the Lord, when I go to them and say, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, they are going to ask, what is his name? Seems like a very unusual question, doesn't it? These are people who have been praying to God for centuries. Why in the world would they ask the question, what is his name? And why is Moses so afraid to go to the Israelites, facing that possibility of the Israelites responding to him by saying, but what is his name? Well in the ancient near east the civilization in which ancient israel was embedded gods were often known by pseudonyms or fake names because to know the na- the, the real name of a god was to access his power and so there's a very famous uh, ancient egyptian myth called the legend of isis and re in which one God is trying to control another God, and he's unable to do so because he doesn't know his name. Well, the God of the Bible is not afraid to reveal his name. He doesn't want to stay at a distance from his people, and so he discloses to Moses his personal name, Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, I am who I am. He says to Moses, Tell the Israelites, I am has sent you. The name of God, you see, is his reputation. I am who I am. Or perhaps some Hebrew scholars conjecture, I will be who I will be. The point is, God is reliable. That is his name. He is trustworthy, he is dependable, he means what he says. Well, that's the the name of God. Now, what does it mean to hallow that name? Well, the verb hallow is an archaic word. We don't use it anymore. It baffles me a little bit why translators keep using the word hallow in the Lord's Prayer when they've abandoned it elsewhere in the Bible. In the creation account, uh, you read in Genesis 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and older translations had hallowed it. God blessed the seventh day and hallowed. The, the newer translations say, God blessed the seventh day and set it apart. Or sanctified it. Or made it holy. That's what it means to hallow. To make holy, to set apart, to sanctify. Well, all of this occasions the question, why would we need to pray that the name of God would be sanctified or made holy, isn't the name of God already holy? Is there anything more holy in the world right now than the name of God? Isn't it like saying, may the fire be hot? Fire is by nature hot. God is by nature holy. Why would we pray? For the hallowing or the sanctifying of God's name. Well, this is because God's name can be profaned. And God's name is profaned by any association with anything evil or unjust or impure. And later on in this uh, time, we're going to see ways in which the name of God can be profaned. But that's why the name of God needs to be hallowed, because we live in a world of sin, and because that name can be profaned, and God is jealous for his name. He is jealous for his reputation. He wants to see his name promoted. He wants to see his name defended. And in the book of Ezekiel and in other places, he says, I will show the holiness of my name, Ezekiel 36. I will show the holiness of my name so that my name will no longer be profaned. So the name of God can be promoted and ought to be. Promoted and not profaned, ought to be honored and praised, as the catechism says, not blasphemed and defiled. And God enlists us to play a part. The holiness of God's name, but also the holiness of God's people. God in the Old Testament enlists Israel, first of all, in promoting his reputation, in promoting the holiness of his name. Leviticus 19, from which we read, begins with the Lord saying to Moses, Tell the Israelites, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Israel is to be holy because God is holy. Israel's conduct is somehow bound up with God's identity. God has somehow enlisted Israel to promote his name and reputation, and if Israel doesn't do a good job, somehow the name of God is profaned. Now, what exactly is the holy life to which Israel is called? Well, what you discover when you read through Leviticus 19 is that it wasn't a retreat from everyday life into some kind of religious huddle or something like that. Holiness for the Israelite was having every part of everyday life transformed. And if you read through Leviticus 19, you will see that every area of life is touched by God's commands regarding holy living. God made commands about the edges of a man's beard. His holiness ran from the edges of a man's beard to the edges of a man's field. Because in Leviticus 19, men are told not to trim the edges of their beards. And I see men in church tonight who violated that command. And I would never make that application. I could never make that application, you know, two months ago. But I feel emboldened to make that application now that I've grown a little facial hair. You know, what are we doing? Trimming the edges of our beards. Don't you know that shaving has pagan origins? All of you who are shaving or following in the traditions of the pagans, I'm being led astray, aren't I, by the ideas in my head. But the point is, Israel was to be distinctive. Israel was to look distinctive. They were to show that they were not like the Gentile nations around them. And of course, when Jesus came, he broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, and so these laws that displayed the distinction between Jew and Gentile lapsed. But... The men were not to trim the edges of the beard, and the farmers were not to harvest the edges of their fields, but were to leave the corners of the fields for the poor. Isn't that interesting? Don't harvest the entire field, but leave the corners for the poor, because the poor had rights in Israel, in fact, Daniel Bloch, who's an Old Testament scholar, says that the law of Moses was a bill of rights, but it wasn't a bill of individual rights. It was a bill of the rights of one's neighbor. The rights of one's neighbor were guaranteed by the responsibilities of an individual. The very fascinating way. Do children have rights in the Bible? Yes, children have rights in the Bible, but they're protected by the responsibilities of parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest your children become dispirited. Well, the poor in Israel had a right to eat. But poverty relief was not a matter of private charity. Poverty relief was inscribed into the legal system. There was a law. Israel had to leave the corners of their fields for the poor. Well, then we get to the verses of our text. You're thinking to yourself, this is going to be a very long sermon. It's not. But here is what Leviticus 19 says, verse 11 Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord don't take a person's work and fail to pay him fairly and promptly. That is defrauding your neighbor. It's robbing from your neighbor. Here in Canada, we, of course, have laws that protect employees and workers and that ensure as much as possible that people receive fair wages. But in much of this world... Day workers are the most exploited sectors of economies. And if we could just ensure that people in China, in these places were paid fairly, millions of lives would improve overnight. But notice the reason for these commands. I am the Lord, the Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh. I am who I am, trustworthy, dependable. And when you, God says to the Israelites, when you defraud your neighbor, when you put up obstacles in front of people with disabilities, if you do not pay people fairly, my name is profaned. My name is blasphemed. And that's why P.W. Philpott, Years ago, turn of the 20th century, and the other pastors in Hamilton were right to advocate for workers who were not being paid fairly. Because to ensure that a worker is paid fairly is to ensure that the name of God is not profaned but hallowed. So the Catechism has it exactly right. What are we praying in this petition? Grant us that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. What are we saying about God's name and the way we walk and the way we talk? Please understand this command, be holy as I am holy, is not unique to the Old Testament. You find it also in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. You could look at verse 13 and following. God repeats the command to New Testament believers, be holy as I am holy. This means we need to care for neighbors. We need to look out for our neighbors. We need to promote our neighbor's well-being. And if we defraud our neighbor or rob our neighbor or mistreat our neighbor or ensure that our neighbors languish, we are profaning the name of God, the name of God that we carry. We are seeing to it that is Name is defamed in the world, and we need to pray all the more, hallowed be your name. Well, how can we really be holy? Because I know something about you, which is also true of me, and that you're a sinner. And I'm a sinner. And how in the world can we be holy as God is holy when he is perfect and we are far from perfect? Well, you know, in the Old Testament, I'll conclude with this. You have another amazing encounter with God. God in Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3. This is God in Isaiah, Isaiah 6. And Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his throne in the temple, and above him seraphim, each with six wings, covering their eyes and covering their feet, and chanting, Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah sees this. And he says, Woe is me. Woe am I. I am undone. I am finished, he says. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. There is no possibility for me, confronting, being confronted with the holy God. And then what happens is one of the seraphim grabs a coal and comes to Isaiah and touches his lips and says to Isaiah, your guilt is taken away and your sin, your sins are atoned for. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. It was a coal from the The altar of sacrifice. And the altar for us is, of course, the cross. And the sacrifice is, of course, Jesus. And because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, our guilt can be taken away and our sins atoned for. This is the way in which the slate is wiped clean for Christian believers. If you believe in Jesus... That cross is your altar, and that sacri- that, uh, the death of Jesus is a sacrifice for you. Pastor Greg talked about that this morning, right? Substitutionary atonement. We're going to see to it, uh, Pastor Greg, that the, the boys and girls learn to spell that word. We'll just keep repeating it, and they can practice at home. But it's because of Jesus that the slate is wiped clean. But it's not the end of the story for Isaiah, is it? Because immediately after the seraphim with the burning coal touching his lips cleansing him. Isaiah overhears the Lord saying, who shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. Earlier on in the pandemic, I was in quarantine. I don't do quarantine very well. I was isolated from my own family, you know, stuck away in a room, fearing that they were actually happy that I was quarantined. And I'd planned to read 15 books. I didn't read one, but I watched a lot of Netflix. (laughs) One of the Netflix miniseries I watched was Unbelievable, which is a very good uh, miniseries. I wrote a review of it for the Gospel Coalition. But the lead detective in this uh, miniseries has affixed to her dash in in her car this very text from Isaiah, here am I, send me. And I thought, that's beautiful. She saw her vocation as a police officer, as a calling from God, an opportunity for her to promote God's reputation in the world, to pursue justice, to see to it that criminals were punished, that victims were protected, but it ought to be the case for all of us. Whatever it is that is our vocation, here am I, send me. Yes, we are broken. Yes, we are tarnished. Yes, we are sinful, But Jesus has died for us. He's wiped the slate clean. He's given us his spirit to purify us. And we can do our part now in seeking the welfare of our neighbor and so promoting the name of God. Here's what the Catechism says. Grant us that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Are you praying this prayer? And what are you saying about God's name in your thoughts, your words, and your actions? Is the name of God profaned because of you? Or is it honored and praised? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for this prayer so basic, so wonderful, so easy to memorize, not so easy to understand, but we pray that it would be true of every person here that we endeavor to direct our whole life, thoughts, words, and actions, so that your name in this world is not blasphemed or profaned because of us, but in fact honored, and praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can uh, text me questions if you will like. We will sing Holy, 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 so appropriate. And then afterwards, uh, I will address a number of questions. Holy, 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 we'll stand as we sing. Oh, wow. Here we go. Oh, boy. Huh. You mentioned Leviticus 19.27, which says, you shall not shave the side of your beard. There's also Leviticus 21.5 that says, you shall not make any baldness on your heads or shave the edges of your beard. I think it's safe. I've got to be careful that this is actually meant to be read out loud. It wasn't a private text to me. I think it's safe that not an instruction to follow or expect obedience to, but then you talk about instructions in your text today in weekly blessings ten, remember, Remembers the Ten Commandments. What is the difference between these two? Uh, okay, so the uh, basically what it comes down to is there are some commands in the Old Testament that we Follow like the Ten Commandments, and there are other commands that we clearly do not follow. In Leviticus 19, if you were to read on, you would see that you are forbidden to make uh, garments out of two fabrics, you know, you cannot uh, yoke an ox and a donkey and plowing and so forth. So, whatever happened to all of those commands? Well, the traditional Protestant answer is that the Law of Moses is, can be divided into three different categories the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. The civil laws were laws that applied to Israel as a theocracy. So uh, we don't live in a theocracy anymore. A theocracy is uh, a situation where you have a nation where God is actually the king, where his law is the revealed standard. Uh, That's not the scenario in which we live. We have a distinction between church and state. And so there was, in, in, in the penal code, the law of punishments in the book of Moses that belonged to what we call the civil law, they were relevant to Israel because Israel was a church state combined. So it was the state itself that uh, administered church discipline. Well, there is no state today that administers church discipline. So there was something unique to Israel in terms of her history that wouldn't apply to us today. That's the civil uh, law. Then there's also the ceremonial law, and these are the laws that anticipate the work of Christ. And here we would include the the laws about clean and unclean, the laws about baldness, uh, the laws about um, making garments out of two different fabrics, the laws about the sacrifices. They all anticipate the coming of Christ. Now, it's clear how Christ in his sacrifice fulfills the laws about the sacrifices, you know, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the um, sin offering, and so forth. It's not exactly clear how how, uh, Christ fulfilled these other laws about clean and unclean. But if you look at Mark 7, you will see that because the, Jesus came to destroy, break down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, those laws regarding clean and unclean lapsed. You find the exact same thing in Acts 10, where Peter sees a vision, right, with the pigs on a blanket. And then he knows that this is, means that he's permitted to go see Cornelius, the Gentile. So those laws were relevant to Israel at a time in her history when there was a sharp Jew-Gentile distinction that was erased by Christ, especially at His cross. And you can read about that, of course, in Ephesians one and two, especially Ephesians two, actually. And then there's or, sorry, then there's the moral law. So the moral law uh, are the laws with abiding norms for today, like the Ten Commandments and uh, other laws that we find, like in, the, in uh, in Leviticus 19, do not lie, do not steal, do not defraud your neighbor. That's the norm. There is no form, it's just abiding and relevant for all ages, transcultural. That's a very long answer. Um, all right. Let's pick one more here. Okay. Is there a case here in light of the first petition to support? workers' unions as they defend the rights and arbitrate on behalf of workers and our workers' unions themselves promoting the holiness of God's name. That's very complex. So, A, I think there was a need for labor unions in the past because workers were not protected by labor laws. Today, workers are protected by labor laws. We have a phenomenon called minimum wage and whatever you think about minimum wage, it is there to protect the worker. Um, Unions used to be very powerful, especially when labor laws had not cut up to speed. Now labor unions have lost a lot of their power because the labor laws uh, are often on the side of of, uh, employees. One of the problems with labor unions in the past is A, they used to require some kind of oath, some kind of pledge, almost like a secret society, which could imply a kind of idolatry. That's one reason why people opposed them in the past. And secondly, they uh, are sometimes premised on antagonism with management, whereas the Bible gives us the impression that we ought to honor managers and employers and so forth. But you do find uh, labor unions, and I would put the, the Christian Labor Association, See. CLAC, you know, C-L-A-C, in this category, they're like the Japanese unions and the unions in the Netherlands, which are often for cooperation with management rather than antagonism with management. So the issue of labor unions is complex, but I would say, A, they they can be problematic if they require some, some kind of oath or some kind of pledge that should be given only to Christ, and then B, they can be problematic if they're premised on an antagonistic relationship with employers and not a cooperative relationship. All right, that's a lot. That's a lot, isn't it? I've talked way too much in answering those uh, questions. So,